today on Act News Daily. And also understand how we need to adjust the production practices, the way we do things, the way we preserve information to make sure that we satisfy the requirements of that, of that consumer. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. I'm Mike Pearson, co-host of the Ag News Daily Podcast, joined as always by Delaney Howell. Delaney, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Mike. It's weird to think that we're already in 2020. It is, where it is always hindsight. That's right. Well, I tell you what, we are off to a new year. The world of agriculture is still moving forward. Delaney, what are some of the big headlines that our listeners need to be aware of here to start uh, 2020? I think the biggest headline that's jumping out at me today and kind of has been trickling down since the beginning of this week, but that is what's going on with the U.S.-Chinese trade front. We saw on yesterday, on Wednesday, the Japanese trade deal is now in effect, which of course lowers tariffs on U.S. agricultural products, including beef and a couple other big ones. But the other big headline is what's going on, as I mentioned there, with U.S. and China. And it is expected now that we will see a phase one trade deal signed on January 15th. President Trump tweeted out on his account on Twitter on Tuesday that the ceremony will take place at the White House and will happen on January 15th. And so we will continue to see if that does indeed get signed on the 15th. Uh, as far as I know, China has not yet confirmed that that will happen, but that's what President Trump is tweeting as of right now. Yes, uh, there was some reporting done by the New York Times that went into some detail about what to expect when that uh, document becomes public. And one of the things they highlighted that I thought was interesting is that it sounds as though the published uh, document that the, both parties will be signing will not have any written commitments mm -hmm. for Chinese purchases. So this, I think, explains why China has been so mum about what their purchases will be. Uh, they're not going to formally commit to anything yep. if this Times reporting is accurate. Yeah, I think it is because I was reading an article today where um, ag reporters sat down with Ambassador Greg Dowd to ask him some really specific questions about how the phase one of the trade agreement works. And like you're saying there, Mike, he said flat out to reporters that they are not going to release the specific commodities that are included as part of that roughly $40 billion over the next two years. He did, however, offer a little more comment in saying that in 2020, they are expected to commit to $24 billion in purchases, and in 2021, about $32 billion in agricultural products, but again, did not say that they would be releasing what those specific commodity commitments will be. Gotcha. So we'll get a dollar figure, but not yes. commitment to specific uh, commodities. Okay, well, that Correct. makes more sense. At least we'll have confirmation of a dollar figure, which would uh, still allow some speculation to take place in the commodity markets and would, uh, you know, maybe be a, a little bit of a bullish factor here as we roll into 2020. Absolutely. And he said uh, moving forward here by the middle of 2020, they hope to have really the implementation process figured out especially when it comes to biotechnology. Okay. All right. Well, we'll just keep an eye on it. This is a factor that will continue to unveil through the rest of 2020, it sounds like. I think so.
We did get some news out of China also. They announced that they are easing their customs curve. So basically they're making it easier to bring in soy imports on their northern border. So historically China receives soybeans at their ports on the east coast, but that could be changing. And it looks like they are trying to make it easier for Kazakhstan, Russia, and perhaps the Ukraine to ship beans into that country. Um, again, this comes to, you know, China has been trying to diversify their soybean purchases throughout all of these, uh, these trade disputes that have been going on for the past year. And now it looks like they're, they're really going to open up their, uh, really their whole market to the world stage rather than just relying on ocean-going vessels. Okay. Yeah. So what other news do you have, Delaney? Well, one thing we haven't really talked about a whole lot on the podcast, but I think is something we should bring to our listeners' attention, Mike, is something going on right now in the food industry. They are awaiting for guidance on how to comply with the new biotech laws set forth by the USDA's Agricultural Marketing Service. Apparently, these federal rules for disclosing biotech food ingredients officially started on Wednesday, but manufacturers and retailers have said that they don't have enough information yet on how to comply with these regulations. So they're basically waiting here to get some clarity from the AMS on that process. And it's it's a little murky, I think, from our end, too, as to know exactly what foods do and do not have to be included as part of that, because they said there are some products such as vegetable oils, sugar, and other foods that are genetically altered DNA, but they have so little traces of genetically engineered crops that it can't be detected, and I guess they don't have to include that as part of the labeling requirements, but some of the big companies that are waiting to hear some clarity are include the Grocery Manufacturers Association and the Corn Refiners Association, basically just waiting to see what's going to happen on that end. But I, I think to uh, put it back down into layman's perspective, I think it's things like the GMO labels, things like that. It, it could really have an impact on what what consumers pick at the grocery store. Hmm. Interesting. So basically the, the rules as written are just too murky for yes. folks to really commit to putting the, the pencil to paper, so to speak, on the labels. And the other weird part of that is it sounds like they – the AMS basically said that they're not going to enforce it. So it's like, okay, well, they released this, but they're not going to enforce it. So you don't technically have to do it yet until January of 2022. So yeah, it's just a very strange process right now. Oh, so really there's a two-year grace period to get this thing figured out. Yes. Oh, okay. So I guess we probably won't see anything until we get closer to 2022. Yeah, that's be... my guess too. All right. Well, I've got an interesting piece of news that was announced earlier today, and it comes out of Hollywood. And this is that the Golden Globes, the uh, big award show there, the Oscars, hosted by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, announced that they will not be serving meat at mm. their award show. Uh, they said that uh, they're doing this to raise the, uh, raise attention to the connection between Americans' diets and climate change. The uh, spokesman for the uh, Lorenzo Soria, Soria, who I guess is the uh, Hollywood Foreign Press Association president, told the Associated Press that, quote, if there's a way we can not change the world but save the planet, maybe we can get the Golden Globes to send a signal and draw attention to the issue about climate change. The food we eat, the way we grow the food we eat, and the way we dispose of the food we eat is one of the large contributors 
contributors to the climate crisis, end quote. Now, there was uh, basically they're going to serve uh, oyster mushroom scallops on top of wild mushroom risotto with roasted Brussels sprouts, uh, which was created by a chef there in Beverly Hills. Um, you know, they're doing all of this to raise awareness and fight climate change. But I'm guessing most of the big Hollywood stars will still be flying in on their private jets and riding around in their limousines and Hummers and everything else, Cadillac Escalades, which, of course, are the largest contributors to greenhouse gas emissions. So it just struck me as stereotypically Mm -hmm. hypocritical. Absolutely. That's interesting. And when do the Golden Globes happen, Mike? Is that sometime here soon? I want to say it's in February. I didn't actually look it up. There was no date, but I'll, I'll Google out right now while you fill us in on some other news. I am looking. I don't really see a whole lot of other news today. I uh, thought it was a slow news day today, kind of being the end of the week here. And we'll see really Washington, D.C. kind of ramp stuff up next week when they come back from their recess. Yes, it is slow here in this country for sure, but it has not been slow in Australia. Um, There has been, uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar, but massive brush fires that have been ravaging the country of Australia. This is one of the worst droughts in decades across Australia. It's hurt their wheat crop. It is definitely uh, lending some bullishness to the, the wheat market here in the U.S., but it has also killed at least eight people destroyed 200 homes, and the uh, the government of Australia announced that perhaps 30% of Australia's koalas may have been killed in these massive brush fires. So, I mean, it is definitely a, a catastrophe down there in uh, the Southern Hemisphere, and, and we'll be talking with a Tasmanian fellow on the podcast tomorrow, uh, not about wildfires, but about meat. I'm curious to hear his thoughts on the, the Golden Globes. I wish we'd uh, gotten the chance to yes, chat with him. Yes, we should have. I know, but they just announced it today. So, gosh, their Golden Globes just kind of screwed us up there. Oh, and the Golden Globes will be Sunday, January 5th. So it is coming up very shortly. Yeah. Actually, I I lied. I do have one other quick piece of news, I think, that segues, uh, segues us nicely into the markets. And that's looking at the general economy. We saw stock market performance in 2019 finish at some of their biggest and best performances in years past and saw those stocks... Really, the NASDAQ, S&P, and Dow Jones finish at really record levels here for the end of 2019. Yeah, and have started 2020 with a bang. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast, found on the Global Ag Network. Both gasoline and diesel fuel are hydrocarbon-based. They contain hydrogen and carbon. When burned, the byproducts of the combustion process are called emissions. When discussing an internal combustion engine, the major emission of concerns are hydrocarbons, defined as unburned fuel, carbon monoxide, which is partially burned fuel, oxides of nitrogen, that is a pollutant created through pressure, heat, and exposure time, sometimes referred to as nitrogen oxides, and particulate matter, soot found in the exhaust. A gasoline engine, by nature of the fuel and its combustion process, predominantly creates carbon monoxide and a lesser amount of the other three. In contrast, diesel fuel is very biased towards oxides of nitrogen and particulate matter. 
Thus, the Tier 4 program is mainly focused on oxides of nitrogen and particulate matter with less concern for carbon monoxide and hydrocarbons. Particulate matter is the visible black smoke we see from a diesel exhaust, while oxides of nitrogen is invisible. The slow flame speed and high cylinder pressure in the diesel is responsible for the elevated rate of oxides of nitrogen production as determined by the Zeldovich equation. If either the cylinder pressure, heat, or flame speed are altered correctly, the resulting effect will be a reduction in oxides of nitrogen. The methods to control emissions can be qualified as either in-cylinder or after-treatment. The first describes those that are internal to the engine, such as the combustion chamber shape and design, the camshaft profile, the method used to inject fuel, and exhaust gas recirculation. After treatments are any process or device that are exposed to the exhaust gas after it leaves the engine, such as a diesel oxidation catalyst, diesel particulate filter, and selective catalytic reduction. Let's see what's happened in the world of commodities. As we look over at the commodity markets today, we've got green on the screen for the grains. We did see some red in the livestock markets, or at least in the cattle complex, but they did bounce back pretty well off of the session lows. In the in the grain markets, March corn was up three and three quarter cents to three ninety one and a half. The May contract up three and a quarter to finish at three ninety eight even. Soybeans, January. Oh, let's go to March. January's in delivery. The March was up three quarters of a penny at nine fifty six and a quarter. November up two cents at nine eighty and three quarters. Chicago wheat had a very strong morning, but then retreated solidly throughout the afternoon with the March contract. Chicago wheat up one and a half cents at five sixty and a quarter. The May also up one and a half to finish the day at five sixty three and a quarter. Looking over at livestock in live cattle, the February contract dropped fifteen cents at one twenty five seventy seven fifty. April down seventy cents, closed at one twenty. In feeder cattle, the March contract dropped 50 cents to close at 143.72 half. April down 25, finished the day at 146.50. And lean hogs, they uh, also had a bit of a volatile day, but closed in the green. The February contract was up 12.5 cents at 71.55. April up 7.5 cents to finish at $78 even. Looking over at the world of dairy in class three milk, we had weakness across the board. The January contract dropped 22 cents to 7. 1704 with the February down 28 cents to close the day at 1710. For our interview today, we will talk about making livestock production more sustainable with James Pritchett from Colorado State University's Department, or excuse me, College of Agriculture. Well, we are joined now in the beginning of 2020 here with a great conversation coming to us with James Pritchett, who is the interim dean for the College of Agricultural Sciences at Colorado State University. James, first of all, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, I'm excited to be here uh, and happy 2020 to everybody. Happy 2020 indeed. And as you look at 2020, James, and really the next decade beyond, we've looked back at the past decade, we had a lot of changes in the agricultural industry, in the consumer food-driven industry, and it sounds like Colorado State University is getting right on board with that, and you guys have developed a new program, the Sustainable Livestock Systems Collaborative. First of all, can you just give us the 10,000-foot view of what that collaborative aims to do? You bet. You know, uh, it's, let's start off by just thinking about what it means to be a collaborative, uh, and that's the idea that we're going to 
we're going to be a part of a team that includes industry or producers and our agribusinesses that support them and all the way up the value chain that you'd mentioned earlier in that intro about having a consumer driven uh, agricultural industry. That's really what this is about is we know consumer preferences are going to evolve. We know that we're going to have more people and, and folks with higher incomes. They're going to demand more livestock protein as part of their diets. Um, and that in turn means that we probably have a more demanding food industry, both in the sense of, gosh, how do we supply all those protein needs, but then also understand how we need to adjust the production practices, the way we do things, the way we preserve information to make sure that uh, we satisfy the requirements of that, of that consumer. So the idea is we're going to work with industry uh, at Colorado State University and our partner institutions and advocacy groups so that they can do the, the same sorts of things, um, that we can work toward that common goal together. So I'm excited about that piece of it. What that means on our side is, is that first we engage with folks like um, the Colorado Cattlemen's Association, our livestock advocacy groups like the Colorado Livestock and, uh, and, uh, Association, and develop some, some important questions around how do you ramp up the protein industry to be able to satisfy these increasing demands. Uh, and then we fill needs around those questions with some of the top scientists, teachers, and educators that, that we have at, at CSU. So that's the essence behind the collaborative. Physically, what that means is, is we're going to go out and hire about 12 faculty who work together as part of a nimble team to engage with industry and answer some of those, those key questions. And we just kicked that effort off uh, here just a few weeks ago. I know it is a brand new effort, but as you're approaching the topic of sustainability, the question or the comment I hear from a lot of producers in particular, but also from some consumers, is that sustainability seems to be more of a buzzword than an actual practice or set of practices. When you look at CSU Center for Sustainable Livestock Initiative going forward, how are you defining sustainability? Well, that's a great question. So we always think about this as a bit of being part of a, a three-legged stool, if you will. Um, there's a piece around that stool that is really about our economic sustainability. So as an industry, we have a set of practices that we adopt, uh, and those have to be able to meet our bottom line, uh, be able to generate a return on investment so that we can be successful and, and have a long-run industry. Uh, we think about another stool of sustainability has to do with our natural resources. Now, our livestock producers have always been great stewards. Uh, we have great stewardship as part of our foundation of what we do. But as we begin to intensify livestock production, uh, and as we really ramp up the production that we have, uh, we're going to face uh, uh, some challenges in how we use our natural resources wisely. So we want to make sure that we've got that piece, that natural resource piece, as part of sustainability. And then we think about the biological, physical part of actually what takes place in our livestock operation. We're thinking about disease. We're thinking about nutrition. We're thinking about animal welfare. That's our third leg of sustainability. So we think about it in that way with lots of input, not only from, from our consumers and our, and our value-added producers, but also those folks that are on the ground and get good advice from them. So, James, obviously this is still in the very, very initial stages, but you mentioned you're going to be working with industry stakeholders. You're going to be working with people outside of the ag industry, maybe those retailers and some folks that fit into more of the consumer role. What sort of collaborations are you going to be doing, or is it more so to create a place where everybody has a seat at the table, so to speak? Yeah, you know, I like this idea of coming to the table, right, that everybody's invited to have conversations. And the way you build that is, is you have a, first you get a director, it's a great leader, who's good at convening important conversations. And that's what we do at land-grant universities, right? Uh, that's, that's part of our concept is, is when we have an important conversation, we need voices at, we bring folks together so we can talk through what we can, what we can do uh, collaboratively. Uh, 
So we'll start off by hiring a great leader in that space and then convene those around uh, things like national meetings and regional meetings that we'll have. And then our day-to-day practice with, with advisory committees too. So we've got a steering committee that's leading our initial hires in this space, hiring those 12 faculty and a, and a director. And that steering committee meets frequently to talk about, hey, what are our goals? How do we get the best information we, we can? And we bring folks in from industry and advocacy groups to be part of that, that conversation. So let's talk about it from a student's perspective. Will sustainable livestock production be a major at some point at CSU, or will this just be used to inform the existing animal science or, or ag majors there at the university? Hey, that's a terrific question. So we have this ongoing discussion ourselves. We have sustainability sort of integrated into our curriculum throughout the classes that we teach, whether that be animal sciences 101, or maybe that's our our nutrition class, or maybe it's our capstone beef systems class. We have aspects of sustainability and all of that. The question is, is can we solidify that into a course of study that really meets the needs of what industry are? I think the answer, rather than being an either or, is, is an and, it's a both. Um, let's go ahead and develop out what would be an ag sustainability track that could be a minor or a major, and let's make sure that we have that integrated into the curriculum so that all of our graduates have that opportunity to add those tools to their toolkit. So we're looking at doing that. And I think it's exciting that you're starting with kind of sculpting the minds of young people and maybe helping them have a better understanding about that moving forward. But James, how do you plan to include the general public into this? I mean, I, I think something like this type of collaborative is really going to be the future of the ag industry as we continue to see more folks wanting to know how their food is produced and maybe not having the direct knowledge themselves. But what do you see as far as engaging with the public through your collaborative? Hey, I'm pretty excited about the National Western Center and the National Western Stock Show that we have in Denver as an opportunity to be able to influence people uh, 365 days uh, out of the year. So currently National Western Stock Show is about 19 days out of the year that we bring the world to Denver, Colorado uh, to share some of the best ideas. Uh, recently, City and County of Denver as well as Colorado State University have teamed up in order to be able to double the size of what that stock show is going to be and also make it open all year round. So from a sustainability livestock collaborative sense, that's the place where we engage the public. Uh, we'll have the opportunity to be able to talk about what it means to be sustainable, show off some of those best practices and get great ideas, uh, whether that be from individuals who live in rural areas that are coming to Denver to, to be able to experience um, educational opportunities there, or if that's folks that are from urban areas that are coming to uh, the stock show complex. So I think, I think that's kind of a first step for us in this engagement process and then leveraging out all the digital media we have, whether that be uh, uh, simple Instagram posts, uh, videos, uh, online courses, all of those have a place in our sustainable livestock collaborative, as I suppose podcasts do too. Uh, uh, this kind of venue works well. Well, we certainly hope so. The word is to uh, to get the word out there for interesting things happening in the world of agriculture. Tell us, when do you expect this collaborative to be fully up and operational? Is it by the end of 2020 you expect to be uh, moving at 100 miles an hour? Yeah, we sure are. So we got our foot firmly on the gas right now. We're hiring two positions really designated around large animal livestock uh, production in clinical sciences. We have two positions that are in animal sciences doing that same thing. We're also advertising for our our internationally known um, uh, leader for this team. Uh, that's that's going to be a pretty special person. So we're we're in the process of hiring them. I expect to have all of that taken care of by about the first of April, uh, and then we'll fill out um, the remainder of the positions by the end of the year. 
Um, so we'll get the team up and running uh, in 2020. I think you'll start to see some impacts and things roll out as we roll into to 2021. A little bit of a parallel process here as we develop kind of the strategic initiatives that fit into this space. We've got to define exactly where we want to start among the, the large number of ideas that are out there um, as we make that, that hiring take in place. So by the end of 2020, I think, I think we'll have a great conversation about the impacts we're already having. Well, it's certainly exciting to see. And, and James, I just have a final question for you as you look at those people that aren't directly involved with something like the collaborative or don't have the ability to be involved in it at that level. How do you recommend folks go about starting that conversation with maybe local consumers or other people that have questions about sustainability or how their livestock are being raised? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, uh, a great question for us to think a lot about just generally. Um, I think one thing that's true is, is that when you have about, I don't know, 1.9%, 2% of the population engaged in production agriculture, we know we're going to tell our story all the time and that we ought to invite folks to ask questions. So whether that be at the county fair, um, whether that be in a grocery store around the, the meat case, whether that be in high profile events, like maybe a governor of a state, uh, uh, sponsors uh, in order to, to celebrate agriculture. I think we want to take advantage of that and talk about the production practices that we have and do. I am a firm believer in a land grant system where we can make use of our extension service and be able to reach into counties and provide information, provide programming as appropriate, and also uh, serving it at different events. So let's look for those opportunities. Let's tell those stories uh, and everything from, from Facebook posts um, to, to actual meetings. Fantastic. Well, James Bridget, Interim Dean for the Colorado State University College of Agriculture, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Hey, thank you, too, and, and have a great day. Well, again, a big thank you there to James for joining us from Colorado State University. It's exciting to see that really they're shaping the minds of young people and also working with industry stakeholders to prepare for really the next decade or two of seeing more consumer choices and products hit the pipeline as well as just maybe misinformation hitting some of those folks as well. Yeah, exactly. I think this Golden Globes thing is a piece of that, and hopefully by the livestock industry taking uh, you know, proactive steps, we can get ahead of this kind of messaging and make sure that the, the real story of American agriculture is being told. Absolutely, Mike. And we like to try and make sure that the real story of American agriculture is being told not only on our podcast, but on other podcasts that are part of Global Ag Network. You can check out any of those at globalagnetwork.com or interact with any of us on social media at Global Ag Network or at Ag News Daily on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Mike, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.